The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So glad you're able to get here this morning. I know it wasn't easy out there, and uh, yeah, it's just great. And really thankful for Carrie and Ning and many people who were out shoveling and snow blowing and just generally our amazing snowblowing team. They have had a month that have tested. And a lot of the times it's ended up being Gabe, our office manager, doing it. (laughs) And not only does he do that, but he has to ride his bike from home to get here to do it, (laughs) which is... Gabe's not the only one who uses a bike all winter. It's really impressive, those people kind of, I don't know if they're doing it because it's cool or they're doing it because they care about the earth, but it makes me happy to see him out there. So I should also mention that um, uh, we'll be talking in the months ahead, Shelley and I, on the topic of loving kindness and how it is really central to our this path of waking up. And Gabe's working on some resources. Are they on the Buddhist study site now? The loving yeah, kindness. The study, yeah. So we're updating it. If you have some good resources that you've come across, you can send them to the office. And if you want, um, as we're covering this topic, the four Brahma Viharas or divine abodes, how the Buddha talks about the different qualities of love, and we'll be doing that probably for a few months. Um, at our weekly practice groups. If you have some good resources, you can send them in. Or if you want to do some study, listen to some good talks from other teachers and some good reading materials, then go to our resource page, look for Buddhist studies, and then one of the topics, you have to go to the right side where we list all the different subject areas. Look for loving kindness and metta, is the Pali word, M-E-T-T-A, and click that. And then you'll get lots of talks articles and other resources that you can just sort of use your intuition, see what looks interesting to you, do a little reading, listen to a talk, and it will supplement some of the material you'll be hearing, Shelley and I, and maybe some of the other visiting teachers covering the weeks ahead, months ahead. So, um, yeah, so much, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was here, Shelley and I were leading the retreat our residential retreat last weekend that Gabe taught, I believe, last weekend, last Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, so much of what we're uncovering in our practice, it's sort of shocking to say it this way, but, you know, is this heart capable of being good? And, you know, it's sort of funny. Do I need to be good in order for my heart to be good? Like, is the goodness my heart expresses in moments, is that something that I do? Or is it something that's there? What is that goodness? And what's really interesting is how uninterested we've been in that question. Like about the nature of goodness, I guess you could you could talk about it as. And it's the same thing. We could have the same investigation, the same curiosity when we see some goodness being expressed by another human being. Somebody's being naturally kind or tender-hearted or patient or whatever 
the particular expression of that goodness might be. Like, not, it's not about thinking about like, what is that goodness in that person or what is that goodness in me? It's really using a different sense, not the thinking sense, as if I can figure it out by thinking about it. And, and this is where we have to get out of the box a little bit, you know. So we call it, you know, we give it a word, we say, well, be aware. Like when you notice there's goodness in your own heart, be interested in it, be aware. That, that doesn't mean think about it. Or when you sense it in another person, well, be aware, be sensitive. And it's like, it's an interesting new muscle. Like this is really what it means, Buddhist contemplation, Buddhist reflection, or what we could call right thinking, skillful thinking, right? It's this combination of using a thought like, what's this goodness I'm feeling or seeing? Or what's this goodness I'm sensing in this other person, right? That's a thought. That's concept, person, goodness, those are concepts. But see, it, it, a right thought, a skillful thought, a useful thought, is a thought that directs the attention, the way we're showing up in the moment, into this space that's not mediated by concept. So we can use concepts to open to this space we call the present moment, the way it is. And in that space, all kinds of things are happening, sensations and mental qualities like patience and kindness and evilness and hatred, right? The whole range of conditions show up in the present moment. And what else can show up in the moment is this reflective, undefended mind or heart. Tender tender in the sense of I'm not bothering in this moment or in these moments to defend myself. And then we can, in that space, we can learn a thing or two about the nature of love or the nature of metta, this inherent goodness, this capacity, this nimble capacity to show up in the different moments of our life and with compassion, with equanimity, with joy and appreciation, with kindness with fierceness when that's appropriate. Speaking truth to power. I know that Kaya and Ethan are doing their, is it next Sunday, their mindful protest, how to do, how to bring mindfulness when you're speaking truth to power, right? So that's next Sunday afternoon. Kathy will talk more about it when she does her announcements. So this is, our investigation these next few months. And, uh, you know, the best way to start as we're getting interested in what this mind, this heart is capable of, right, is just to um, not be limited by our imagination, right? Because we have very compelling stories about me and about, you know, the other people around us. Like, I'm mean, or I'm irritable, or I'm, I just don't care. Or, you know, in these stories we've been practicing, whatever the particular story you have, 
we've been practicing them over and over. And it's our stories and the way the mind clings to our stories, it really limits what we can experience in the moment. Because we trust our story more than we trust the way it is, the sort of actual expression of our heart, the actual expressions of other people's hearts. We trust the story. I mean, you could bring to mind a politician you don't trust, and it would be interesting if you saw that politician doing something really beautiful or wholesome. Like, how would your mind edit that out? Like, no, that's not happening. That just didn't happen. He's just trying to manipulate, or she's trying to manipulate us, or something like that. There's evil behind it. (laughs) And the same thing, you know, maybe if you think your cat, I I noticed, I didn't read it yet, maybe it was in the Atlantic Monthly, which is one of the news magazines I read online. I think it was there, but it was something, the title of the article was like, Is Your Cat a Psychopath? Anybody see that? (laughs) Was it in the Atlantic Monthly? Yeah, it's, it's like, I want to read that article. And I just sort of rolled my eyes through it, and one, one little sentence I caught was something that uh, that we just think they are because there's something about their facial expressions, like the actual musculature in the face that's different than like a dog that can kind of you know, imitate and sort of look not like a psychopath. <laughs> Where cats have this sort of, you know, dead stare, no matter what's happening. <laughs> Do you love me? <laughs> you know, they just sort of, like, emptiness. <laughs> Which reminds me, there's this great movie, this great documentary by, um, oh, what's his name, the famous German director, Werner Herzog, um, called The Grizzly Man. It's an amazing movie about a guy who's a little or a lot off balance. And he would go up to Alaska and videotape his interactions with grizzlies and then come down, I think, to California. And he had some connections with some school systems and he'd go in and do little presentations to the children and show them the videotapes. But he was spending way too much time and way too close to these grizzly bears. And he had this sort of disconnected ungrounded relationship to these creatures. And uh, one of the last things in the film, in the documentary, Werner Herzog just was talking about how we tend to idealize and pretty up. Like we tell ourselves a story about nature, about grizzly bears in this case. And then he just has a simple shot of a grizzly bear close-up face, and you get that same look you get from a cat. Because through evolution... They haven't evolved. They didn't need to, for whatever reason, need to express anything with their face, which is what we're used to seeing when we look at your baby or we look at our partner or we look at a good friend or we look at our dog who, to survive, they had, you know, what got selected for were dogs that could mimic and make humans feel safe, like you belong, you're part of the tribe, you, you know, you're on the inside, not on the outside, right? So I think this is partly what this article is about. But <clears throat> this actually connects with metta, because, you know, we're really, we're not talking about love in a tribal sense. 
like, I trust you, I love you because you share my DNA or because we grew up together or even because you look like me. You know, you got two arms, two legs or even more, you know, you dress like me or your skin's like mine or whatever might make somebody feel safe. Metta isn't exclusive even to, you know, living beings, right? It's, it's really a way of being in the present moment where the mind's not bothering to construct boundaries or distance. Because boundaries, distance, categories, those are all conceptualizations that arise with the thinking mind and then the mind identifying or clinging to those thoughts or becoming dependent on those thoughts. So it's not even so much that we have thoughts of separation but it also demands that there's some clinging or identification or dependence on those thoughts. Because those thoughts aren't going to disappear very quickly, how we tend to separate ourselves. But we can learn that, yeah, that's just what my mind does. It thinks that way. Right? This is how a lot of us unpack our racial conditioning, which I've been really paying more attention to the last number of years in my own heart and my mind. Right? It's like, I can't undo my cultural conditioning around race or any kind of difference. You know, gender difference, sex difference, class difference, age difference, size difference, right? I can't undo my conditioning. I see it all the time now, much more than I used to. I'm training myself to see it. But I can train myself, the mind, wisdom can be trained not to be confused by these kind of inner voices that we have because of our cultural conditioning. We can hear the voice, we can see the thought, and we realize, yeah, that's how the mind's conditioned. That's just a thought. That's just an inner voice. I can see it and I can feel the feeling that goes with it. And because I in moments, can see it and feel it, then it doesn't have to run the show. If we're not seeing it and feeling it, this is the thing about prejudice and all of our conditioning, about anything, right? It's not just around these <clears throat> spectrum of differences that we live with culturally. It's really about everything. If we don't see it, we should just presume it's running the show, that these cultural habits the way our heart's been conditioned, even through genetic conditioning, right? Like to be afraid of something that might be a snake. You know, it's dusk and we see a little squiggle on the ground and we panic, right? You see that with other animals sometimes, like a cat will see a hose and it just like, you know, how cats can kind of just jump. I've seen my cat do that sometimes when it sees a branch or a hose or something, but it, it, it sort of surprises them and it thinks snake, right? So that's cultural conditioning. Or, I'm sorry, that's genetic conditioning. So we have this, and well, that's not going to go away, but we can learn to bring that online, like wake up to that kind of conditioning. And this is part of this whole movement. Like when the Buddha taught about love, it's really a support for this, capacity to wake up, to bring everything online, to see everything. Because that 
essential definition of love is the capacity to include, the willingness to include. The sense, the fearless sense that everything belongs. Or even sometimes it comes out of a spiritual exhaustion. I'm just tired of being tribal. I'm just tired of being in my boxes or categorizing or comparing. I just want to put down that burden for a moment. And when we do, we're in that, you know, that more unified place of not bothering to separate, not bothering to categorize things in terms of good and bad. It doesn't mean we suddenly become stupid and we don't know what's dangerous or what's safe. It just means we're not bothering to hate, right? So it's a, we don't need to hate what's dangerous. Like we can see some of the things that are moving, for example, in our society, some of the fear and the way fear or the way power and um, attachment to power might be expressing itself. We can see the real danger in it. We can feel motivated to respond to it. But we don't have to exhaust ourselves by hating the unskillful forces in our families, in our society, or in our own heart. Hating is exhausting, and it it's distorting. It actually gets in the way of seeing clearly. So part of what we need to do is find this full and nimble range of expression, of engagement, that isn't being motivated by qualities of the mind and heart that are exhausting and deadening, like hate and fear and greed and distraction, you know, delusion, like denial, not wanting to see, not wanting to feel. Somehow, like, uh, um, I'm forgetting her name, but there's this uh, teacher that I love, she's dead now, a Western teacher that talks about uh, this one little line of hers, Nobody consciously chooses to be numb. I really like that. Because we, it's so interesting because we, all of us, right, in our little and big ways, we have habits where, you know, unconscious habits, places in our life where we have somehow created the habit to not be aware, to be numb, to be closed down. That's how we survive. I see it in my most important relationship with my spouse, like little places in that relationship, little patterns, where my habit, if I'm not careful, is to close down, to not be there in the interaction, you know, to be on autopilot or to be (coughs) protective in some way. And it's like, (coughs) when when I'm aware that that's happening, and I'm aware of the implications. Of course, it doesn't make sense in that relationship or any relationship to practice being not there when I'm there. Right? I mean, when we say it out loud, it's just like, it's really insane that that would be like somebody would take that up as a strategy for safety and happiness, like to not be there when we're there. So it's shocking when we see how much, how many places in our lives that's actually the predominant strategy. Like, I'm just, okay, this is coming out. I mean, again, this is happening mostly unconsciously. 
okay, this thing is coming up, this set of circumstances coming up in my life, so I'm just going to go into the zone where I'm not really there and hope I get to the other end and then I'll become a person again. You know, be willing to be connected again. You know, those places where we just... And sometimes it can go for a while, like people don't know it at the time, right? Because they're practicing not being self-aware. They're practicing being on autopilot. But then later they'll so feel like, okay, I'm a human being again. I've been reborn. I'm not sure what that was. And they also generally, we feel, we sense the repair work that needs to be done given how long we were under the influence of that strategy of being numb, being unaware, not feeling what we're feeling, not seeing what we're seeing. Which is, you know, it's really a toxic choice where we're basically like, I can't trust the life I'm living. I can't even trust myself enough to see clearly, to be honest with myself. Right? You see how unproductive or toxic that strategy would be. And love is really a direct you know, assault on all of those habits because when we're tuning in, you know, and this is what we'll be talking about in the weeks and months ahead, these different strategies for attuning to this capacity for goodness, which is really a capacity or a maybe feeble initially when we uncover it, this confidence in allowing boundaries to cease. You know, just like meeting the moment without defense. And so it might initially like happen in places where we feel, for whatever reasons, relatively safe, or just a very quick opening and then a retreating, like, well, that was amazing, and now let me think about it. Let me go back to a more trusted space where I'm not intimate anymore. So one of the ways just to begin is to start tracking in the next couple weeks without any judgment, moments where you feel cut off or numb or on autopilot. And again, you're not judging yourself. You're just sort of it's just a, there's a little crack in the numbness, just enough to notice things feel pretty numb right now. Heart feels pretty closed down right now. Feeling pretty flat or distant right now. Disconnected right now. And it feels like this. Right? That interest really important. And then the other thing to track are moments of intimacy where you feel real, where the mind, the heart in that moment or in those moments isn't dominated by your conceptualization, your the story you have. doesn't mean you don't have a story. doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. But what's in the forefront of awareness, what you feel really connected with, is this more embodied experience of like having a heart that feels, having a body that feels the wildness, right? The the very real intimate sense that everything's happening and you're not in control. And the not being in control is 
both kind of enlivening and scary and really has, this will be subtle initially, a kind of a liberating feeling. Not what's liberating is the growing realization, I don't have to be. There isn't anybody who has to be in control. What a relief not to pretend that I have to be in control of my kids, my job, the meanness in the world, the meanness in my heart, that we don't have, like, freedom or release, happiness, doesn't depend on me being the sort of universal parent that's going to clean up everything. Which, ironically, frees us up to engage and to do some serious cleaning. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of funny not needing to take that responsibility in a personal way really allows compassion to move. Because now we're doing it out of the generosity, the freedom, that goodness in the heart, not because we're afraid of the mess in our heart, in our families, in the world. right? Because we've included it all. We've realized I don't have to be afraid of how messy it is, how much suffering there is. I'm tired of being afraid of it. I mean, it's sort of, we have this habit, you know, when suffering is far enough away, it's interesting how far does it have to be aware, away, rather, before we can feel like unburdened by it. Like, is what's going on in Venezuela, is that far enough away or Syria, that's a little bit further away, or you know, or emotionally sort of disconnected. But to, like, whether it's you have a pet that's dying, or a parent that's dying, or a social issue you really are connected with and are really touched deeply by and really care about and responding to, or whatever it is, wouldn't it be nice? for all the doors and windows to be open. doesn't mean we're obsessively reading the news. It just means when something shows up, like we do happen to read an article or have a conversation or see something, feel something, we're not in the habit of shutting the doors and windows or putting it in a box somewhere that gives us, justifies some distance. So we're willing to be touched by whatever shows up in our life to really let it in, to feel what we feel, to allow the response to come out of that intimacy, that not being defended. And we don't have some idea that I've got to be connected to every and all suffering or every and all joy. We're just happy to sort of respond to what what touches our heart. So I think this tracking will really help. You know, it will help us (coughs) undo the stories we have about the limitations of our love, of our kindness, of our patience, of our capacity for forgiveness, our capacity to appreciate the beauty and the goodness, our capacity to remain balanced when things are really wild and confusing and uncertain. So just tracking 
noticing numbness, noticing separation, noticing hardness of the heart, you know, the quality of aversion, anything that's separating, disconnecting. And just without judgment, just, oh yeah, this is the shape of the heart and mind right now. This is how it feels. And you'll start to see those moments as a kind of burden. The more you can connect honestly, intimately with the suffering of those frames, those states of mind, the more the spiritual exhaustion, like, oh, honey, this would feel so good to put down. I am so ready to put this down. We may not know. We probably won't know how to put it down. But what comes before the putting it down, those habits of separation, what's in the way of love, the movement of love, what comes before is feeling how exhausting it is to not be in the movement of love. We have to get really familiar in all the places in our life where love isn't moving. Because love, in a way, is the default when fear and aversion isn't there. So we, you know, with our language, we make love something, but it might be more useful to imagine love as the absence of separation, the absence of fear, absence of hate, absence of judgment. How nice it would be for those patterns, the weight of those patterns to be put down. And then we're noticing moments of intimacy where the mind, the heart has put that down, and we're we're specifically noticing how much wildness, and wildness, because that kind of points to more like, whoa, is this safe? Because that's a natural question to arise when our heart is actually open and the mind-heart isn't separating in any way. It's very appropriate for the thought, is this safe? And the answer to that is, I don't know. Let me check it out. Not... Yeah, it's safe. Don't tell yourself it's safe because we don't know it's safe. That's the very, that's like the defining characteristic of that, that place is we actually don't know whether it's safe. And the way we find out whether it's safe is we just stay one more moment in that space. And then one more moment if we can, and one more mo- moment if we can. And then it's like, in hindsight, we realize it might be safe. I'm still here, <laughs> you know? And the other thing we notice is I feel more alive, actually. I feel more real. It's still wild, and I still don't know whether I'm safe, but I finally feel like, you know, you know it's sort of funny to say this, like feel alive, like as if we, we don't really know what it is to feel alive. This might be what it feels like to be alive. You know, the wildness and the uncertainty, right? That might be more what we're looking for, the heart's looking for, than certainty. And that's the deal with the devil. Like, okay, you get certainty, but then you don't get your life. Or you can have your life, but you have to give up certainty. And it's really up to us. And this is what we'll be playing with in these these weeks ahead. So before opening it up for some 
comments from you and sharing your wisdom, what you've been learning in your practice. I just want to mention, as we usually do at the end of the month, that this community operates on the energy of Donna. Donna is that Pali word for generosity. And we use this in a very pragmatic way. So like any nonprofit our size, you know, kind of medium-sized nonprofit, you know, we have a building and we have a retreat property that we're in the middle of a $300,000 renovation out in western Wisconsin. Andre's here. He's been out working there. And Corey's our construction manager for that project. Really beautiful thing afoot out there. Hopefully, we've asked Andre and Corey to send us some more photos, and we'll put them in the weekly email so people can hear about it. And we have office staff, like Gabe Keller Flores is our office manager, as well as being one of our teachers, and Shelley Graff, our associate director, and myself. Gail Iverson, our bookkeeper, and then we support our teachers. And so much, like I mentioned with the snowblowing team, you maybe saw the chart that Gabe put together on the bulletin board. There's so much of what happens here is done by volunteers and the financial support from the community. And for 25 years plus now, we've operated where people practice receiving what they get, being part of the community as a free gift, and they really are practices to let that land as a free gift, no strings attached. So we want people to show up without feeling any obligation to give in any way, to really learn to receive a free gift as a free gift. And then naturally, if you feel like giving back because that makes you happy, then find a way to let that generosity move in a way that makes sense in your life. If you're somebody who's in debt and doesn't have money, it doesn't have to be through a contribution of money. It can be just by your good wishes, your sincere practice, or volunteering your time, or you know whatever makes you feel good. But the idea here at the center and then everywhere in your life is to sense that circle of free giving and receiving, even in places that aren't really built that way, like a job where you've got a contract. But you can still sense that when you're giving yourself to your job, your paid job, that you're doing it because it feels good to pour your heart into what you're doing. It's for your own sake that you're giving generously at your paid jobs. And when that check shows up, you know, like, wow, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> and look at that, I can contribute and support the federal government and the state government and the local government. <laughs> that makes me happy and Social Security and Medicare. Right? <laughs> Why not turn it into a cause for happiness instead of a, a cause for grumbling? I mean, it's going to happen either way. What is the skillful way to be relating to these places in our life where there's give and take? What is actually skillful? Not like, try, oh, I should be good. But what actually is enlivening in your life? What attitude is enlivening? So this is a safe place to practice your relationship to Common Ground. And of course, we have more information on our website. You can find out more how people you know, find that circle of giving and receiving. And there's a, also a sheet of paper outside by the donation bowls that you can take a look at that explains a little of this too. But we have some time before the kids come in. Maybe time for two or three folks to share a little bit about what you've been learning and this general area of love. That makes sense? Yeah, do you want to... Why don't you start off, Paige, and then behind you when you're done. I'm really appreciative for these teachings and um, something I'm noticing, this showing up 
open-hearted and undefended and that sort of intimate connection, my cultural conditioning, that connect, connection is synonymous with taking it personally. And so I'm just pulling those two things out, how to connect in the most personal relationships without taking it personally. It just seems like there's a paradox there. But when we're connecting, like those of you with kids, you have a young child, right, Paige? And partners and other close friends, close people in your life. When we learn, you know, when we practice being (coughs) intimate, like I do, practice being intimate with my wife, my partner, then all of that, taking it personally, all of the wounds that are reverberating because of the you know ordinary relationship of having an intimate partner, they're going to be right there. So the taking it personally is going to be right there. So it's really a question of how we're understanding that feeling of taking it personally, that feeling that this is personal, this hurt is personal, this longing is personal, this need is personal. We can see, we can normalize that. We can see that as nature. Of course, there's neediness here. Of course, there's unfulfilled needs here. Of course, there's some wounds of not having gotten what I wanted or what I think I deserve. Of course, it's all here in the wildness. Because that's kind of the wildness. It's like feeling the reverberations of having taken it personally and the tendency to continue to take it personally. Because that's what makes it feel really real and wild. And that's why it's hard to stay in that place. It's so easy because it's so well greased to then pick up, to identify with that tendency to take it personally, to actually take it personally. But when we're really intimate, then that's that's what makes up my relationship with this person, that personal feeling and all the baggage. So we're we're kind of developing a vocabulary for the richness of kind of our humanness, the neediness of human. We're not we're not pathologizing neediness. You know, really even petty kind of stuff. We're not pathologizing any of that, right? Because we want to be really close to it. It's only by being close to it that there's a way of being free with it, not free from it, but free with it. Because the freedom with it is understanding what it is. Oh yeah, that's just that stuff. I remember that stuff. Like, you know, I've been really looking, Gabe reminded me, we need to talk more about sex at the center. Because it's so part, I mean, we are sexual beings. And as I've been, you read some, um, what the scientists are saying, but humans, more than other mammals, you know, we are sexual creatures. Just like how through evolution we've evolved. I mean, we're much more sexualized than a lot of the other mammals are. And uh, so it's like, well, for a group of people that are really interested in the way it is, we need to talk about that. <laughs> and so I've been paying attention. And it's like, it's so interesting to look at our 
how our sexuality, how that conditioning is put together, like actually in our hearts, in our minds, because it's, it's just really good to be honest about it, you know, how that works, and not to be ashamed of it or afraid of it, which is our tendency. You know, that's why we don't talk about it, because it would be sort of inappropriate to sort of own up to having like that thought or that image or looked at that thing. So anyway. <laughs> Quick, before I say more. <laughs> uh, I'm Leslie, and um, kind of my question or thoughts kind of lead from that. Um, a lot of what you were talking about made me think about relationships with family and um, the conditioning that we have with those relationships from you know, all the experiences we've had, you know, throughout our lives and taking it personally and, and those interpretations of things that are done or said. Um, and, and I think maybe the answer was kind of towards the end when you were talking about uncertainty and being comfortable sitting with that uncertainty of not knowing exactly what was meant by what was said or what was meant by what was done. But I'm curious for you to talk more about that. All the unresolved pain and wounds from all of that, without having to determine whether I should have that wound, but if if something hurts, then it belongs, right? Because it wouldn't hurt if there weren't causes for it to hurt, right? Things don't just hurt because somebody made a mistake or somebody's being bad. Things hurt because there are causes and conditions. So a lot of what happens in that wild, intimate space is it's more than the story. What's actually relevant is it hurts. It hurts like there are these wounds, these unattended wounds that are there. That's, that's a lot of what we uncover the more we get some momentum in our awareness practice is we realize, so when we you know, teachers or whatever, friends talk about the tender heart. They're not talking about kind of that idealistic version of compassion. They're talking like, my heart feels broken. It feels beaten up. But that's one way to look at it. More and more we learn to see that brokenness as a kind of strength. Or another way of sensing that, it's like my willingness to be honest about the brokenness is a real sign of wisdom and strength. And and to realize that it's okay for the heart to be broken. It's okay for the heart to feel these wounds. That that's actually a sign of health, not a sign of weakness. And that's a real turning point. And it generally happens slowly. You know, we touch in and then in that moment, it may just be for a moment, we realize for this moment it's okay to feel what I'm feeling and that's enough now. And then we back out. But we, we start to normalize and in a way ventilate that space, that tender space with a willingness to feel. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. Thanks, Paige. Take care, everyone. Thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.